Thanks for checking out the YVF podcast today. If this is your first time listening in with us, we want you to know that you are loved. Wherever you're joining us from, we hope this message encourages you, builds your faith, and helps you in whatever season of life you're in. Now here's Pastor Kevin. Well, places of scripture, most of them are in 1 Corinthians. But the first place that we're going to open up in a few minutes, if you want to go ahead and open your Bible, is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And uh, we're going to begin at verse 8 there in just a few minutes. The title of the message that the Lord's put on my heart this morning is puffed, it's a question, puffed up or built up. And it comes from the scripture in my particular Bible, instead of saying puffed up, it's going to say the word arrogant, being arrogant. But in the Greek, it literally says to be puffed up. And then that, that word in these passages of scripture that we're going to look at is, in several of these places, is uh, compared or contrasted with the word exhort. And you know this word, but it's not a word we use every day. But in the Greek, the word exhort just means to build up, to build something up. So the real meaning is, are we puffed up or are we built up? And I'm going to talk with you a little bit about that difference. I want to, there is a secondary title to the message uh, that, that's also, I, I want to give you, and it comes from, this, from the scripture we're going to read, and it is this, learn not to exceed that which is written. Learn not to exceed what's written in the word of God. So I want to read a poem to you, an excerpt from a poem. I love poetry. I don't do it very much in sermons because I know not everybody does. But, but it comes from a really um, a poet that lived a long time ago that, that lived in the 1700s, a famous poet by the name of William Cooper. But his name is spelled like Cowper. It's pronounced Cooper. And I actually saw this in one of Frank's Abeka books. And, and I man, that is exactly what I want to say. <laughs> And what the Lord's put on my heart. So it comes from a, from, a, from a long poem called The Winter Walk at Noon, but the part I want to read goes like this. Knowledge and wisdom, far from being one, have oft times no connection. Knowledge dwells in heads replete with thoughts of other men. Wisdom in minds attentive to their own. Knowledge, a rude, unprofitable mass, the mere materials with which wisdom builds, till smoothed and squared and fitted to its place, does but encumber whom it seems to enrich. Knowledge is proud that he has learned so much, but wisdom is humble that he knows no more. We live in a day today where knowledge is power, and information is what people hunger for. And if you can get the dirt on somebody else, then you can have the power over that person. And it's, that's, that's been true throughout hu human history. But in an age of social media, in an age of online bullying or whatever you want to call it, in an age of complete control over the mass media that we listen to, the things that we hear, you know, whoever has knowledge and whoever has access to that knowledge, they have power over people's lives, but we find very little wisdom in our society today. And God wants us to be built up as people of God who walk in the wisdom of truth. Everyone today wants to be in the know. 
being in the know is more accessible than it's ever been in history. All you have to do is Google it. And, uh, you know, it's happened to me. It's this disease where I can't even remember anything anymore because I just Google everything. <laughs> and, and it's just knowledge is, is everywhere. Um, now we have the artificial intelligence. And it's already becoming obvious that our artificial intelligence will make our natural intelligence a lot less intelligent because we won't need to think anymore. You can just push the button now. And that's the age that we live in, but nothing has really ever changed. Knowledge is proud, but wisdom is humble. Knowledge encumbers people. Knowledge breaks people's relationships between each other, but wisdom builds us up. Wisdom is truth, and Jesus said, truth makes us free. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and in verse 8, I'm going to read verses 8 through 12, uh, speaking about the coming of the Antichrist, the Apostle Paul, by the Holy Spirit, writes these words. Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the, appearing, by the appearance of his coming. Things may be getting worse today, but we have this promise that it will get better, and Jesus will come back, and he will put an end to all this lawlessness. In verse 9, it says, That is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan. And listen to this. With all powers and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. These are very important words in the scripture. Satan always works through deception. Deception is never just an out, well it can be if you're really stupid and really gullible, but it's never just a complete out and out lie. Deception is a partial lie mixed with partial truth it's a combination of using knowledge that a person has in order to manipulate other people who are listening. And Satan is very adept at this. This is all he's ever been able to do. It's the only weapon that he has is deception. Satan came to them in the garden. And the Bible tells us that Adam was not deceived, but Eve was completely deceived. That sounds like that's, a, you know... A, Talking bad about women when you read that in the New Testament. No, it's actually talking bad about men. It tells us actually that Adam knew what was going on. And he went ahead and went, in other words, in a sense, he set his wife up. He allowed her to be deceived. He didn't protect her from that deception, even though he knew, because it says that he was not deceived, but she was deceived. And how did Satan deceive her? He deceived her with things that sounded good and had knowledge mixed in with them so that she wanted the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She wanted to have the power that belongs only, only to God. So it says that he comes with deception. And the reason why we are gullible, just mark this down, why are people so gullible? Why do we believe everything that just comes down the pike? Because we don't love truth. It says they did not receive the love of the truth. And the love of the truth is what saves us. Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. So if we love truth, what is that going to look like? If we love somebody, we defend that person, don't we? If we love somebody, we support that person. 
if we love somebody, we're caring and gentle and kind toward that person. Or at least that's what we know we should be and we want to be. So if we love truth, then we'll be kind and caring and attentive to the truth. If we love truth, we'll actually desire to read the Word of God every day because we know that it's the source of truth. If we love truth, we'll defend that truth. If we love someone, you know, I, I love my wife. I really love my wife. And if I'm in a group of people and they started talking bad about my wife and saying things, I wouldn't just stand there and, and say, yeah, you're right, she's kind of like that or something like that, you know, and everything. No, I, I, would, I, I would, not, not just because I'm afraid I'd get in trouble at home, but because I truly believe this, I would, you know, stand up for her because I love her. I love my kids, you know. I can see the faults in them. Uh, mathematically and with the power of knowledge, but in the wisdom of God, I don't see any faults in my own kids. I don't know why, because that's how God sees us. We love our families. We love the people around us. Well, if we love truth, then we'll defend truth, even when we don't understand everything the Bible says. We'll take a stand for the Bible and defend that truth. But if we do not love truth, then we are gullible and we are set up for deception. So now go with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 3. And all, all of these scriptures I'm reading, it, it would do you well. It would be really good for you to, to look at the entire context here and what Paul's talking about because I don't have time to explain it all. But the Corinthians are a church that was walking in deception. And they were fighting with each other all the time. And they were judging each other all the time. And they were judging each other's spirituality and how spiritual a person was and how much they knew and all these kinds of things. The kinds of things that happened, the strife, the contention, the unforgiveness, the hurt feelings, the things that happen in churches today were always happening in churches for one basic reason, that churches are made up of people. And we need forgiveness. And we need to walk in that forgiveness. So in, in Corinth, it, it was really a, a, a big problem. So throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, this is being dealt with. And that's why 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, is in 1 Corinthians. Because they needed to hear that as much as we need to hear it today. So let me read verses 1 through 3. He says, he's answering questions. They wrote a letter to him, uh, and he's answering questions for them about... Uh, can you take your? Uh, can you go to court and sue each other if you're church members? Uh, he answers questions about divorce, remarriage, but they're all around this theme of walking in the love of God as a family of God. And this question is concerning things sacrificed to idols. It says, now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. But before I read on, let me explain. What's these, what are these things sacrificed to idols? Well, it's something that we don't have so much in our society. Now, you might balk at a piece of meat that you see in the, in the market uh, that says that, uh, that, that that meat is, uh, what's the word? Halal. Halal. It's, it's like kosher for Jews, but it's for Muslims. I don't because I know, maybe I shouldn't say this out because I don't want to offend anybody, but I know I don't care if this was dedicated to uh, Allah or not. I know that this is really good meat, okay? So, but that's, that's just me. But they had these struggles. Meat was being sold, so they would sacrifice to idols, and then they would take that meat to the marketplace and sell that meat. And that was the choicest meat. 
because they picked the best animals to sacrifice to their false gods. So for Paul, it was no big deal because he didn't believe in those false gods anyway. He could buy that meat, he could eat that meat. But there were problems with people, uh, some people's conscience. They felt bad about eating that meat. And so it says, uh, concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant. Literally, it says, knowledge puffs up. So mark that down in your heart. Knowledge puffs a person up. It makes him arrogant. It doesn't mean you don't need knowledge, but knowledge without wisdom, without love, puffs you up. Knowledge makes arrogant or puffs up, but love edifies or built. The Greek word is builds up. So knowledge make, puffs up, love builds up. And the question today, are we puffed up or are we built up? Are we building each other up in our relationships or are we using other people to puff up our own selves and our own ego? Are we puffed up or are we built up? If anyone, in verse 2, supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. So we see something very simple here. If you think you know something this morning, then you don't know anything. As soon as you think you know something, that's when you need to stop, go back to the scripture and say, that means I don't know anything. Because when you think that you've accomplished the height of knowledge in a certain subject or a certain area, and let's talk about each other, because that's what this is talking about. When you think you really have read that person, you know that person inside and out, and you're already ready to say, people never change, I know what that person is like, then you better stop yourself and say, maybe I don't know everything because I'm not God, and I don't really know what's in that person's heart. Okay? And that can work both ways. It can be when, you know, I know that person's a man or a woman of God. I'm going to listen to everything that person says. I'm going to follow everything that that person does. Well, the script, the script came out last week. The scripture says that the, the, the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. And, and that we need to judge what's, what, what's happening. I never want you to listen to a sermon that I'm preaching and just say, oh man, I know Kevin's such a man of God, we're going to listen to every single thing he says. I, I always, I say, please read the context, study this out, you know, find this out for yourself because it's never about a person, it's about Jesus, that you have this relationship with Jesus Christ. So when you think that you know somebody or know something about somebody, then you don't really know anything or you don't have the kind of knowledge you ought to have because knowledge puffs up. Let me tell you about something that is puffed up. Everything that is puffed up will eventually pop. And when it pops, it's going to hurt people. Have you ever had one of those balloons pop and they hit you in the eyes or something when kids are doing all those crazy things with balloons or you're blowing them up for kids? When things pop, people get hurt, okay? And when we're puffed up, we're eventually going to pop. So we go down through chapter 8 and look at verse 9. It says, He's talking about the things that are sold in the market, the meat that is sacrificed to idols. And he says, you know, basically he's saying the question isn't about the meat. The question is about each other and about each other's conscience and each other's heart. He says in verse 9, but take care <coughs> that this liberty, you know, that you're, you're free to buy that meat. It's fine. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Now he's not saying don't go buy that meat. 
In fact, he's saying it's okay to go by that mean. But if it's offending somebody, wouldn't it be better for you just not to buy the meat? Just eat the lower, just eat the choice instead of the prime? I mean, if somebody next to you is getting really offended by the prime, then pick the choice out. You'll get the prime next time when you're in the store when that guy's not next to you. But take care of each other's souls. Take care of each other. He says, but take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you, who have knowledge, you have the knowledge. But if somebody sees you who doesn't have it, and you're dining in an idol's temple, you're, you're eating at the Muslim restaurant or whatever, I, I don't know what, what would be equivalent to this today. Uh, if, if someone sees you, uh, but, but many things are an equivalent to this, okay? This is not antiquated uh, uh, teaching. This teaching is for us. You'll know when this is, is important. He says, uh, um, uh, if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined. The brother for whose sake Christ died. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble... I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble because my brother is more important than my belly. My brother is more important than anything else, that I am actually my brother's keeper. Do you remember what Cain uh, asked God when God asked him, where is your brother Abel? Now, God knew where his brother Abel is. He knew that he's dead already. He could hear the, the blood crying out from the ground, he said. But he asks Cain, given an accounting, where is your brother? And Cain says to him, am I my brother's keeper? Well, yes, we are our brother's keeper in Christ Jesus. So the example that he's giving, if they see you dining in the idol's temple, their conscience is going to be offended. And that doesn't mean they're going to say, oh, man, that's bad. They're going to say, there's Pastor Kevin dining in the idol's temple. That means it's okay for me to dine in the idol, idol's temple. Is it okay? Yeah, except that that's not your conscience. See, everybody's conscience speaks to them in a different way because a conscience is based on what we know of God's Word. The word con-science means to know together with someone else. Science means knowledge. So a conscience is knowledge, and we need to listen to our conscience. And when we disobey our conscience, then we're walking in sin because the scripture says whatever is not of faith is sin. We're doing it because we saw someone else doing it. Not because that's a revelation we have from God. And so we're going against our conscience. Do you know that I can hardly ever ride a motorcycle? Because my conscience won't let me. It's a sad, sad thing that my mom crippled me with. And every time, because she forbid me to ride motorcycles... Because her brother was always in accidents on motorcycles. And Uncle Steve was always in an accident. Always in the hospital. He kept riding those things. Last time I, uh, not the last time I saw him, but when I saw him in his 70s, he had this little electric scooter he rode around Claremore, Oklahoma. And I said, what happened to your motorcycle? He goes, oh, I'm finally done with those things. I can hardly walk and stuff. But my mom would always, you know, you can't ride motorcycles. Uh, what about dirt bikes? No, you can't ride dirt bikes. And <laughs> so I did it anyway. But every time I did it, I felt guilty all the time. 
And the, 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 the only time I didn't feel guilty was this little putty motorcycle in Murmans that guy had with a sidecar from the World War II era. Because that, that, we were going real slow and it felt safe. But the last time I rode motorcycles with, was with Pastor Kevin McMullen. That was in Kansas City. We got back from that little trip around the city and everything. The whole time I felt guilty, literally. And so the guilt made me feel afraid. And so with that fear, gave me no confidence to drive that motorcycle. And I got back. I said to him, I, I'm never going to ride a motorcycle again. Why? And I told him that story. And I said, I just don't feel comfortable. Because mom said, don't ride the motorcycles. Well, you heard Tanya tell a story from the Old Testament uh, <coughs> the week that I was gone about the, the men who refused to drink wine. Because drinking wine was wrong? No, because their father told them not to drink wine. So they refused to drink wine because that's what their father told them. So that's my conscience about motorcycles. Am I right? Is it wrong to ride motorcycles? No, it's not wrong for you. It's wrong for me because mom forbade me. And so I can't get over that on the inside of me because she was a righteous woman. That's just how it is. So if you see me on a motorcycle, please pray for me. I might get in trouble there. I don't know. But, but that's how a conscience is. And if you override your conscience, you feel guilt. And that's, that's good. That's a righteous thing. Now, a conscience can be trained. Sometimes you feel guilty about something you shouldn't feel guilty about because you don't know God's word yet. And as you grow in the word of God, your conscience will adjust and, and change to those things. But you have to understand everybody's growing at a different rate. And so Paul says that somebody else is weak. That's, that's not a, an insult to that person. It just means they're at this, this level where they're growing. So what do you do with weak people if you actually care about them? You help them, don't you? You know, what do you do with a little baby that can't walk? You don't throw them on the ground and say, walk, you think you're human? A horse that's born can walk, a cat can walk, a dog can walk. Why aren't you walking? You know, that's not how you treat people that are weak. When people are weak, you take care of them. So if we can see each other through the eyes of Jesus, and if you feel like you're super strong in the Lord, that only means you should be more caring for those people that are weak. It doesn't mean that you should be flaunting your strength in their face. Because what will happen is you'll offend the, their conscience. And that's walking in love. So are we puffed up or are we built up? And so Paul says, if food causes my brother to stumble, I'll just never even eat meat again. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. In chapter 4, and beginning with verse 3. Again, just jumping into the context. In verse 3, it says, but to me, it is a very small, I, I love what Paul says here. So just listen to this. This is, this, is, this is really good. To me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. Now, he's talking about judging each other. And he uses, I'm not going to get into all the little Greek terms, but he uses different variations of the Greek term that means to judge. And he uses, and so in English it comes out as examine, judge. The, the examine part means when you're looking at every minute detail, like a judge would do in court. Okay? So if you've never had the great pleasure of being in court for some reason, then you don't know what I'm talking about, but you can watch Perry Mason or you can talk to Steve Rye, but they examine every little detail and you have to be really careful and you need a good attorney to represent you and everything, right? And so he's talking about that. That's how, we re that's how we act toward each other. I mean, we just examine each other. And Paul says, you know, I don't even examine myself. I don't look at every minute detail inside of myself. I love this verse 
Because I have learned in my life as a Christian that it is a dangerous thing to begin to deeply examine yourself. Okay? It's a dangerous thing to say, I need somebody to hypnotize me or go to some tarot card reader or to somebody else so I can find out what's wrong with me. And then it always ends up with, with what we're going to talk about in a minute, exceeding what's written in the Bible. We go beyond that. Okay? And what's written in the Bible about your parents, honestly? Honor your father and your mother, right? It doesn't say if they're a good dad or a good mom. And it's okay. I'm not saying it's wrong to recognize things that your parents did wrong, or maybe your parent was completely absent and you never knew them, and maybe that has caused trouble for you in life and all this kind of stuff. But when you focus on what your parents did wrong, you'll never walk in freedom. But when you focus on what Jesus did right, you will be set free and you'll be able to love and honor even the worst parent that ever existed or forgive the ex husband, wife, whatever in there, right? You'll be able to walk in the freedom that only comes when you stop examining every single minute detail. Satan loves to make mountains out of molehills. And there's something inside of every one of us. And you can find a reason to feel bad about yourself if you want to, okay? But instead of being puffed up with pride, because a lot of times what we call humility is nothing but stinking pride. We're proud of the problems we have. That's why we like talking about them all the time to everybody. But instead of being puffed up with that pride, we can be built up by the word of God. The scripture says to build yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. You can pray in the Holy Spirit. You can build yourself up on the word of God. And instead of believing what what you're telling yourself about yourself and what other people are telling you about yourself because you're going to hear that trash talk every day. You're going to hear it from yourself and you're going to hear it from other people and you're going to hear it from people that you don't know. That's why you go back to the Word of God day in and day out and you build yourself up by saying, this is truth. And everything else is some version of a lie if it does not agree with this. This is the truth of the Word of God. So Paul says, he says, it's a very small thing what you say about me. It's no big deal. I'm not going to get my feelings hurt because you picked me apart. And believe me, they did. <clears throat> Paul wasn't as popular as you like to think. You know, if your pastor is in jail all the time, he's not going to be popular. <laughs> and he's just going to be forgotten pretty soon because we forget each other really soon. But they, they examined him. He said, I, I don't care what you think about me. It, it, it means nothing to me what you think about me. And, then he, and he says, it means nothing to me what the human court says about me. And he says, you know what? It, it means nothing to me what I say about myself, too. I don't even examine myself. He says, I am conscious of nothing against myself. So, you know, he's, he's not saying just ignoring problems that are in your life. He says, I don't know about anything that's wrong on the inside of me. It seems to me that I have everything right with God. But he said, but when, you know, at the end of the day, it doesn't make any difference. Because I'm not the judge. You're not the judge. Nobody is the judge except God. And he says, the one who examines me is the Lord. And then he uses this to teach them. He says, therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time. And this means to judge someone, to condemn someone. But wait until the Lord comes. So what's the time? Well, the time is when Jesus comes back. And he's going to say, what is gold, what is silver, what are precious stones? 
He will tell us who comes into the kingdom and who's rejected from the kingdom. So he says, don't judge anything until the actual judge shows up. In other words, just don't judge anything. Let Jesus take care of it. He says, uh, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. Do you know that God judges not only and not primarily according to what is done in the flesh? If he did, we would all be condemned to hell already. He looks at the heart of people. He judges according to the motives of his heart. God said this to Samuel when Samuel was supposed to anoint a king from the house of Jesse. And he was kind of shocked that he was going to pick the kid, David. And God said to him, don't look at the stature of a man. Don't look at his muscles. Don't look at his intelligence. Don't look at anything, how beautiful that woman is or how handsome that guy is. God does not look at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. And I always want our youth to understand because that's the age when you're wanting to be beautiful, wanting to be handsome. And, you know, when you're teenagers, you start getting into that. But I want them to understand, really understand, that there is a beauty that comes from the inside, and it's the only beauty that lasts. And that beauty lasts until you're 95 years old if it's there. It'll last all of your life if it's there. It shines out from your eyes, and you look at that person. You know, every one of us probably know examples of this, but I, I know people that on the outside, if you just didn't know that person, there would be nothing attractive about that person at all. But when you know that person, they are so attractive. They're so beautiful because it's emanating from the inside. Then we all know plenty of people that should be attractive when you look to the outside. But once you get to know them, you can't stand to look at them anymore because there's such ugliness on, on the inside. Do you know what it says about Jesus? In Isaiah, it, said, it says that there, that there was nothing in his appearance that would attract us. You know, Jesus did not stand out with his physical appearance from the other men in Israel of his time. He didn't actually have a halo on top of his head, like you see in the pictures. He wasn't actually more handsome than the other guys, like the actors might portray it. He just looked like a guy. The beauty and the glory that he walked in emanated from the inside. Do you know that Samson, uh, physically, the Bible doesn't tell us that he had bigger muscles than everybody else in town. In fact, I seriously doubt he did because he could never do any of those feats of strength unless the Holy Spirit came on him. It wasn't because he worked out all the time. He might have been the fattest guy in town. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. We don't know anything about Samson. He might have been the little scrawny guy that gets the, the sand kicked in his face. The story would actually be more cool if it was like that. But when the Holy Spirit came on him, that's when he had the strength. The beauty and the strength comes from the inside. So he says, do not go on passing judgment until Jesus comes, because Jesus will disclose the motive of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. And he says in verse 6, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively, or as a figure of speech, I have applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant or puffed up, in behalf of one against the other. You know, one chief ways we get puffed up is by comparing ourselves to other people. Well, I'm not as bad as that person. And we've been doing this since we were kids, right? You know, my, my older brother is Frank, you know, and I would love to say that phrase. Well, I'm not doing as bad of things as Frank's doing. Frank's really bad. I'm, I'm okay. 
you know, and I'd always get in trouble for saying that. You let's, that's between us and your brother. This is between us and you and all that kind of stuff. But comparing ourselves to other people is a form of knowledge that puffs us up. We don't compare ourselves to other people. You know, that athletes uh, or anybody that's competing in any area of life, students, if they're competing with grades or something, well, I know with our new school systems, maybe it's different with grading on curves and stuff like that. But if you want to achieve excellence, you don't achieve excellence by saying, I'm better than this group of people that surrounds me. I'm the biggest fish in this pond. What you do is you go out into the bigger pond and find out how you can swim there, right? I mean, you don't compare yourselves to other people. If anything, you compare yourselves to, to, to yourself. Am I getting better? Am I growing? Am I achieving more? Am I doing this faster than I used to do it? Am I, figuring, am I learning some lessons? How many of you have learned some lessons over even the past month in the school of hard knocks, as it's called? Everybody does all the time. Failure is a great teacher, but God doesn't want you to stay in failure. He allows you to go through these things, allows us all to go through these things so that we can grow. So he's saying, stop comparing yourselves to each other. It only puffs you up. In verse 7, he says, for who regards you as superior? In other words, when you think you're better, you think you're superior, or other people think you're superior. I mean, I'm going to be honest with you. I am just like you are. I enjoy when someone says to me in any area of life, you did a really good job. I mean, it makes me feel good if somebody says to me, man, that sermon really ministered to me and really blessed me or something. But I've learned every time someone says something like that to you, don't you kind of already understand? You know, I can't let that go to my head because five minutes later, somebody's going to come and just kick my feet out from under me. <laughs> I just need to walk steady. Just go steady. You know, don't. Base your life on the praise or on the insults that other people give to you. The only thing that matters is what Jesus says about you. And the only place you're going to find what Jesus says about you is in this Bible. So he says, do not go beyond what is written. Do not go beyond. Do not exceed what is written. So I want you to think for a moment in your life what what that actually means. Because when I read that scripture, and the Lord was putting that on my heart. I had to think, what, what, in what areas of my life do I exceed what is written? Do I add to the word of God? Remember in Revelation, it says that if you add to this uh, scripture, that these plagues will be added unto you. How many problems have I created in my own life because I was puffed up in my mind and went beyond what the scripture says. Now, I'm not talking about false doctrine necessarily or anything, you know, but I began to see myself through the eyes of the world instead of through the eyes of Jesus Christ, through the eyes of my Father God, through the eyes of scripture. How many problems can we create in life when we go outside of our uh, anointing? Do you know what an anointing is? We need to teach on anointing sometime. You know, anointing is pouring oil on somebody's head. And when they poured oil on David's head, he was a child. But from the moment the oil was poured on his head, he became king. Even though he wasn't sitting on the throne yet, God already said, you're king. He anointed him to be king. The word Messiah or the word Christ simply means the anointed one, the one who has the oil poured on his head. He is made king. So each one of us have an anointing by the Holy Spirit. John said, you have an anointing by the Holy Spirit and you know all things. You already know. 
you already hear the Holy Spirit. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you just last week gave your heart to Jesus Christ and prayed to receive Him as your Savior, then the Holy Spirit is already working in you. If you listen to Him and listen to the Bible and listen to the Word of God, you you have this, this knowing on the inside. You have this anointing. But when we go outside of that anointing, when we try to do the job that God, you know, hasn't given us to do. Let's look at David. When David was supposed to be at war, because that's who he is, David is anointed as a warrior in the scripture. He's the best fighter in town. He can fight. I mean, that guy can fight. It says that he has killed his tens of thousands. He could command armies. He could build strategies. He knew how to do this. But in the day when he decided We'll let the other guys go to war. I'm tired of going to war. I am now a king, and I will sit on my throne. He got a little bored, so he went walking around on his roof, saw a naked lady next door, looked over there, and that's when all his trouble started, but only because he wasn't in the place he was supposed to be in. Now, the story works out good in the end. God's mercy triumphs over his judgment, but he, that never would have happened in the first place if he didn't go outside of his anointing, if he was in the place where he was. So it says, do not exceed what is written. And it's interesting that he uses the example of, he says, myself and Apollos. And I'll just explain that to you real quick. So Apollos is like Paul's uh, competition. Okay? And if you read through Acts and everything, you'll, you'll pick this up. And, and they didn't work together with each other. They worked in the same places, but one after the other. And Apollos is a master teacher. He's probably the best teacher that we have in the New Testament besides Paul. And Apollos and Paul are on the same level. Only Apollos is Greek. You can tell by his name. And Paul is Hebrew. He's Jewish. And Paul's Greek, you know, Paul speaks Greek. Everybody spoke Greek then. But he speaks Greek with an accent. A funny accent for the Europeans. They even make fun of how he speaks. It comes out in, in 1 Corinthians. That he's weak in his bodily presence. When he speaks, he's not such a great orator. Apollos is a trained orator. He knows how to speak. That's not saying anything bad about him. Because Apollos really loves Jesus. And he's really serving God. But Paul is saying that even though Apollos... He doesn't use the word competition. I'm, I'm using that. But he's saying even though Apollos is my competition... For your attention, Apollos and I work together. We are not actually in competition with each other. One of us plants, and the other one comes and waters. In another place, he plants, and I come and water. Because we both work for Jesus Christ. He says, so I want you to look at us as an example. That even though you're completely different, you have different anointings, you can walk together if you just stop picking each other apart. If you just stop judging each other, you can do this. You can walk in love. You are brothers and sisters in Christ, and this is the family of God. So, knowledge will eventually run its course. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you know these scriptures, but I'm just going to read them with no comment. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 from verse 8. It says, love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy... They will be done away with. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. 
When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I have also been fully known. But now faith, hope, love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. So all knowledge runs its course. All knowledge comes to an end. No matter what you know today, mark this. You only know in part. You don't know anything yet. We don't even know God fully. We know Him in part because we've never seen Him. Oh, Pastor, I had a vision. You know, I was caught up into the third heavens. I was this, I was that. Oh, just you wait and see. That is nothing compared to what it will be when Jesus comes back. I, I can't even, I have zero context to even imagine what it will be like. But I know I will see him, and I will know him just exactly as he knows me. We only know in part. We only prophesy in part. And Paul compares this to the way children are. Do you know how kids are? If you haven't raised kids, then you've missed out on a part of the gospel. This is how kids are. Kids know everything. They know it inside and out. Those two grandkids, Michael and Gabriel, they, they'll tell me things like, uh, oh, what, what was that one about, uh, uh, oh, I can't even remember that word. Remember the word they kept saying wrong all the time? Chipmunk, Chipmunk yeah. <laughs> Gabriel always, first of all, he's always telling me that a chip, chip monk is a chick monk. <laughs> and he's like, chick monk, chick monk. Well, I made the big mistake of correcting him, you know. That's actually chip monk. Oh man, the fight of the century ensued. You are wrong, Grandpa, Teapaw. It is chick monk, chick monk. He would never, he, I mean, he's convinced it's chick monk and that's it. So I, I just gave up. Okay, you, you know it all. It's chick monk. Okay, you know, and then it was, uh, uh, what's, that, what's that little yellow thing he's got, Stephen? The little doll, the electronic hedgehog, he says. Pikachu. Pikachu. Pikachu is the electronic hedgehog. And then I hear Stephen saying to him, well, actually, he is... He said he was a rat. Oh, he says, he's a rat. But actually, he's a squirrel. And then, and then it's, yeah, he's not a squirrel. He's a rat. I'm like, he's fake. He's not even alive. It's not even real. <laughs> but, you know, kids know everything. But Paul says, when I was a child in Christ... I spoke like a child, I reasoned like a child, I thought I knew everything. But a hallmark of maturity is knowing that you don't really know anything. And that you need the wisdom that comes only by walking in love. That knowledge is a building block that wisdom can use to build a house. But when there's no love, knowledge does nothing but puff us up and eventually tear us down. So he says, do not exceed that which is written. In James chapter 4, um, and you know these scriptures too, but let me get, so I don't misquote it. James chapter 4, in verse 1, it says, just a great question for Yarrington Vineyard Fellowship today, for all of us. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? So the question is, why are we fighting with each other? You know, husbands and wives can ask each other this question at home. Friends can ask this question. We can ask this question as a church. It's a great question. Why are we fighting with each other? What is the source? And then he answers it. It's plain. Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? 
because there's a battle going on in the inside of your heart between your flesh and your spirit. And, and your pleasures or your lusts, uh, the things you desire, and the reason Nurek Sharon doesn't use the word lust here is because we use the word lust, it always gives the image of sexual sin. But that's not the case in the Greek. It just means any pleasures. They can even be good pleasures, good things that you want. It's not necessarily because you want something bad. Okay? In fact, in this context, it is not that you want something bad. It's that you want something good because it goes on and says, you lust or you desire and do not have, so you commit murder. You are in, I never murdered anybody. Well, then you don't understand what Jesus said. He said, when you hate your brother, you're killing him. When you slander your brother, you're committing murder. When you're talking behind his back, what do we say? He's stabbing me in the back. It's spiritually, you're murdering that person. He says, you are envious, uh, you, so you commit murder. You are envious and, you cannot, and cannot obtain. What does envious mean? It means I want what you have. I'm not happy with what I have. The grass on your side of the fence is greener than the grass on my side of the fence. These are normal human emotions and normal human attitudes. He's not saying they're not normal. He's saying they're not spiritual. So grow up and stop it. He says, you're envious and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not, and he, then he says it simply, the reason you don't have is because you don't ask. You do not have because you do not ask. And then, he said, then someone says, well, I've asked God about it. He says, well, you ask, but you do not receive because you ask with wrong what? With wrong motives. God judges our motive of our heart. He's not so interested in you getting new toys as he is in you being a new person. And everything in our life is, it's, you know, it's school. When, when a person dies, we get all crying about it and everything. But <clears throat> honestly, if they're in the Lord, it's understandable emotions we have. But we should have some joy because they've actually graduated to their reward then. The whole thing of life was just to get to the graduation. And, and, and so he says, um, uh, you, you, uh, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. And then he gets real hostile and says, you adulteresses, calls us adulterers and adulteresses, but that's what it is. It's spiritual adultery. We're cheating on God. Get it? We're cheating on God. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And that is in the context, not of some wicked moral failure. That is in the context of us just getting in fights with each other about things we're actually praying about. Okay? He's saying, get your hearts right. Check your heart. What, how are you treating your brother, your sister? The love is more important than you getting the new toy or you getting this or getting that. God's working on the heart. God's working on your motives. So now go with me back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And we are almost done. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Good well, good. <laughs> in verse 1, I just preach to myself and pretend like I'm preaching to you. In verse 1, it says, it is actually reported that there, that there is immorality among you. So now we're going to talk about the bad stuff. James is talking about things you're praying about. Here he says, it's actually reported that there is immorality among you. And the word immorality is porneo in, in the Greek. And so he explains what kind of immorality is. What, what, what kind of 
porno it is. Okay, that's the Greek word. There is immorality among you. And this is an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles. That someone has his father's wife. So we don't know if this was his birth mother. It sounds like it was uh, his father's second wife. But whatever the case may be, he is sleeping with the wife of his father. Okay? We don't even know if the father's still alive. It doesn't matter. This is the wife of his father. So this is incest. And incest to a level that Paul says doesn't even happen among the Gentiles. And this is happening in the church. I know that, and it's sad, that Paul would not be able to write those words today. Because this does happen among the Gentiles. There's no end to the immorality among the Gentiles today. But at the time, what he was saying was what's happening in the church is worse than what's happening even in the world. But I think we can still say it. Because even if that stuff does happen in the world, it should never be happening in the church. And there are still scant few things that the world's ashamed to talk about that are still done in darkness. They're going every day. They're, they're being brought into the light. I get it. But, but there are things that people are still ashamed to talk about. And he says that this is happening in the church. But listen to verse 2. He says, you have become puffed up. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. You're not kicking this person out of church. You should be punishing this person. He shouldn't be singing in the praise and worship group. He's living in open sin and everybody knows about it. And you're so puffed up that you don't grieve, you don't mourn about the sin that you see around you. Well, that's what you were hearing this morning about, about this, this movie and about the things about the kids and stuff. When, when we're puffed up with knowledge, we become callous to the world around us. And I'm not sure how it works like that. But you know when you have swelling in your body, you know, it's like you're all swollen up, you're all puffed up, you've got water in your legs or something like that. We just become callous to the world around us. And all we're thinking about now is ourselves, 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 ourselves. Has anybody ever been in, in I know you have, you know, for one reason or another, in extreme pain. You have no sensitivity to anything around you because you can't. Everything's just focused on me in that moment. You know, you go into emergency mode. You have to be saved. You need help. And that's normal. It's the way God created our bodies. But when spiritually we're puffed up, we lose, we lose touch with what's going on around us. We become callous to it. And we've become callous to the things that are in our world. And it just creeps in. I mean, it, it, it just does. I'm, I don't mean to offend anybody, but I'm just going to be honest. When we first moved here and they were voting on the marijuana thing, that was just one of the things. Then we had the prostitute thing and all that stuff. Well, I mean, I was in shock that I live in a county where there's prostitution. I was in sh legal prostitution, not just prostitution. I get it. That's everywhere, but legal prostitution. And, that, and then, and then I, I mean, I was in shock that I'm driving down the road and I have to drive past this dispensary. And I was in shock when I went back to Tulsa, Oklahoma, where I grew up. That's, by the way, Jerusalem. If you knew anything back then, it was the most spiritual city in the world back then. And I went back to Tulsa, Oklahoma, and there were, there were billboards on every corner for, you know, dispensaries. And I just couldn't believe it. And the whole town was all dirty. It still is. It's just not the same. There's this big word, Ichabod, written above the town. Probably not really, but I feel that way. And anyway, uh, 
But you know what? It, I'm, I'm sorry to say, but I'm not so much in shock anymore. You just get used to it. Well, that's where you have to stir yourself up and say, am, am I getting puffed up? Am I just getting used to these things? Is it not going to shock me when kids are being stolen from the street? Would I actually get involved? Would I be a guy that would tackle the gay parade on a motorcycle? You know, would I actually risk life and limb and reputation to get involved to save somebody else's life? If, if I'm saying no to that, then probably I'm puffed up. And I need to be built up in the Word of God. I need somebody to pop my bubble and get real with God about what's really going on in our country, what's really going on in, in uh, the world that we live. He says, you, you've not even mourned this. You're not even sorry about it anymore. You've just gotten used to it. You're callous to it. But here's what Paul says. On my part, the, the same guy that said not to judge each other. Listen to what he says. On my part, though, absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him. But I thought you just said don't judge him. Just in the previous chapter. Here's the difference. There's a huge difference between judging someone according to the knowledge that we have and judging someone according to the wisdom and the love of God. And every parent knows this difference because every parent who loves their child does judge their children and discipline them and punish them so that they can change, so that things can get better. You know, I've, it's, a, it's a sad thing, and I'm, again, not trying to offend anybody, but just trying to be honest. It's a sad thing, but I've, I've seen people and some people on a national level who have softened their position on uh, gay marriage, homosexuality, all these kinds of things. Christian people, conservative Christian people. And the reason why they have is because somebody in their family has come out in a homosexual life, living a homosexual lifestyle, gay marriage, or something like that, and then they're not able to judge their own child. Do you understand? Do you get that? Well, I, I mean, honestly, I'm, I'm telling you as a father with kids who've got lots of problems, and, <laughs> you know, that there is a place where you can walk, where you don't stop loving that kid, but you do stand firm and say, my position doesn't change. I love you, but this position does not change. And I want to tell you why that's so important. That's so important because that will save your kid. That will save that person. The story of the prodigal son. The father did not change his position. He said, you can take your money, you can go, but I'm not going to chase you down, I'm not going to follow you around, but you know where I am when you need me. And when he came back, when he moved back, that's when the father ran out and grabbed him and restored him. But if the father had changed his position, the son wouldn't have had a home to come back to. Do you get that? If he had compromised then the son wouldn't have had any way back to be saved. So it is a good thing to judge spiritually and to judge according to the word of God. We cannot exceed what the Bible says. And the Bible is very clear on these issues. And it does not mean that you're not walking in love. I know the world is telling you, you're just not walking in love. But that's not true. You are actually walking in love. Because you've... You, you've kept the fire. You've kept the truth. You love the truth. There will be some place where people can come to be saved because not every wall has been torn down. Not every city has been invaded. 
you still have a city of refuge. You still have a place where they can come home. Your heart is still open because you have not compromised. To not compromise means to truly walk in love. The, compromise is, the compromiser is the one that's not walking in love. So he says, I've already judged this person. He says, in the name of the Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I will be with you in spirit, I can't even show up, but I'm going to be there in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan. The words I have decided are in italics because they're not in the original. What he's actually saying is, you deliver this one to Satan. He's telling them, walk in love and deliver him to Satan. And by the way, what does deliver one to Satan mean? Could teach on that a long time, but excommunicate him. Kick him out of church. Tell him he's not allowed to come here anymore. You deliver a one to Satan, but spiritually you're delivering him into the hands of the enemy. He's lost the protection of this local church. Why? Oh man, that's cruel. Oh man, that's not walking in love. It's not true. He says this is for the destruction of his flesh. This is, as long as we keep covering his sin, he's never going to come to the end of this thing. But if we let him go, he's going to start hanging himself with his own rope. He's going to start drowning really fast. And he's going to come to the place where his flesh is destroyed. And with the destruction of his flesh, there's a hope that his spirit will be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Because at the end of the day, that's the only day that ever is going to matter. I'm going to end with one more place, and it's in 3 John chapter 1. And you can read 3 John. There's only one chapter. I don't know why I said chapter 1, because there's only one chapter. But in 3 John, just listen to, to the words here that are written. Are written. So John says, I'm, I'm writing to the beloved Gaius. I, I love you in truth. Be, beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. It's a great verse to confess over your life. For I was very glad when brethren came and testified to your truth. That is how you are walking in truth. Listen to verse 4. I have no greater joy than this, to hear of my children walking in the truth. The truth is the love. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father which is in heaven. Over and over again in Scripture, and especially in 1 John, it's said to us, what is the will of my Father in heaven? The will is that you would love one another, that you would walk in the love of truth. It's not what you say, Lord, Lord. It's not the songs that you sing, but it's the life that you live, the motives of your heart, this walking in this love of truth for one another. And it begin, can begin just simply by forgiving one another. I'm not going to take the time to read 3 John to you. Another great homework piece for you. But in 3 John, he's dealing with these problems. There's this dude in the church there, and I'm just calling him a dude because that's what he is, and uh, he will not accept people. He won't reject, receive people. He's rejecting people based on knowledge. And, and John's not happy with this guy. But he says about you, Gaius, he's writing to two different people in the same church, and he's writing about, about you, Gaius, you've brought so much joy to my heart, and the reason you bring joy to my heart is because you walk in truth. You accept people. You accept the weak you accept the strong. You don't do this on the basis of, of you know, the knowledge that you have about them. You have a heart that's open to look at their heart and listen to Jesus. You receive them. 
He's not talking about gullible, being gullible. The person who walks in the knowledge is actually the one that's set up for, fall, for a fall and for deception. He's not talking about just saying all the sins are okay. No, we just read that there's one guy, Paul turns him over to, to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. He's just talking about walking in love. And again, every parent knows what this means. Because every parent that has kids, grandkids, you know, you know what it is when kids are not walking in love with one another. And they're not walking in the truth with one another. And it, it makes you sad as a dad, you know. It, it doesn't bring joy to you. You want your kids with all their problems or whatever, you just want them to love each other. You know, you want there to be peace in your home. And you dream of the day when everybody's just going to love one another. And it never comes, but you just dream of that day when there's just going to be peace between all the kids. One day of peace. Everything's peaceful. Nobody's fighting with anybody. Well, I was thinking about that. Isn't, isn't that, if that's what John was saying about the church? I don't know if you realize this, but our church family is, is, is a more real relationship than our blood family. It's the truth. And that's not denigrating our blood family, because our blood family is the building block of the church family. But our church family, we are actually really brothers and sisters. And that's true for all eternity. The relationships we have on earth are true for this lifetime. When a spouse dies, the marriage is dissolved, the person is free to remarry again. That's just how it is. Relationships we make in this life, they're true in this life, or they are valid in this life. But in all eternity, I don't understand how it's going to work, but Jesus says there's no marriage or giving in marriage, or whatever that means. I don't know, don't ask me to explain it, but, but I know this, it's something better than we have here. That in the kingdom of God. So we are actually really brothers and sisters in Christ. And John says, it brings joy to my heart when you guys love one another. It brings joy to my heart when you walk in the truth with one another. But man, it just hurts me on the inside. When you're rejecting each other, when you're bad-mouthing each other, when you're stabbing each other in the back. And we cannot be doing this because those who are good, they imitate good. He says in verse 11. So he says, be imitators of what is good. Just walk the way Jesus walks. Walk with that love in your heart and that peace in your heart. And stop judging according to what you see in the flesh. But by not exceeding what's written in Scripture, judge according to the Scripture. And I know you can pick a verse there and says, you know, Judas hanged himself, go to another place that says, go and do likewise. And you can judge people that way. But that's not true to the Scripture. If you don't know the Scripture, study the Word of God. Receive the Word of God. Walk in the full counsel of the Word of God, and you will be walking in love with other people. And you'll be able to forgive them. If you can't forgive someone today, I heard a great testimony, I won't say by who it's from, but a great testimony of a person who God worked in this person's life, and, uh, and empowered them to walk in forgiveness towards a person that had done them a great deal of wrong and in the natural did not deserve that forgiveness. I know you think, well, they didn't ask for forgiveness. That's, that, it doesn't matter whether they asked for that forgiveness or not. Jesus wants to empower you to walk in forgiveness. That doesn't mean you have to trust that person. 
That's not what forgiveness is. Trust is something that you earn. But that means you're free from judging that person. And you, you know, Paul says, I just turned him over to Satan. Boom, just let him go on out there. Well, well I don't, it's not my problem anymore. This is God is going to deal with him. And the whole reason for this is for him to be safe. Because I've talked to him until I'm blue in the face. We've gone round and round about this. You know, I've gone over and over against this. We did the one brother with one brother thing. Then we got the two brother thing. Then we brought him before the elders of the church thing. We did everything Jesus said, and the guy still hasn't repented. So you're out. As one famous pastor once said that I was sitting in his sermon, and Tanya remembers this, he said, there's the door. E-X-I-T. That's what it says. You're out of here. And I was like, whoo, man. But the, the pastor was right in, in the context of what he was talking about because there comes a time when it's not my problem anymore. You can't judge everything like that anymore. But I'm telling you, for 99.9999% of our relationships in church, it never comes to that. And nothing ever have to, has to come to that if we just walk in love with one, with one another. Because God sees the motives of we our We hope heart. you enjoyed the message. Okay, Before so I'm going to invite the worship group up here. If you here. want to continue receiving updates on new sermons, that you subscribe to our podcast. If you want more information on how to contact us, make sure to check out our website at urringtonvillianfellowship.com. And we'll see you next time on the YBF Podcast.